Welcome to the Western Bowel podcast series with talks on traditional spiritual teaching and its application in the world today. The intention of the series is to offer something useful to those who are drawn to study themselves and engage practice on the spiritual path. New talks are posted twice each month. The content of the talks is for informational purposes only and not to provide any kind of counseling, medical, or professional advice. This podcast is titled, Using Death as an Advisor, What Death Can Teach Us About Living. The talk was given by Vijay Fedorshak on November 13, 2021, via Zoom. Vijay is the organizer of the Western Baul podcast series and author of Shadow on the Path, and Father and Son. In this talk, he references teachings from the writings of Carlos Castaneda and material from the book The Five Invitations by Frank Ostaseski. If there is benefit in this talk for you, please consider sharing the link to it or writing a review on social media or on one of the podcast platforms. Vijay Fedorshak. So the topic is using death as an advisor, what death can teach us about living. So the topic itself, the title, is a hybrid of a phrase used by Carlos Castaneda in his books, Death as an Advisor, and the subtitle of a book called The Five Invitations. And the subtitle is Discovering What Death Can Teach Us About Living Fully. I'm not sure if any of you have read the Castaneda books. I did a long time ago, decades ago. But I was struck with a few things in those books, and Death as an Advisor was one of them. But at this point in my life, I realized that what that meant to me then and what it means to me now are two very different things. At the time, it was more philosophical. And at this point, it's much more tangible. So I'll go back and forth between some of Castaneda's ideas, things that he wrote about, and the five invitations. In Journey to Ixlan, Castaneda writes that Don Juan, the Yaqui Indian whom he met and who became his teacher, told him that death is the only wise advisor that we have. When things go on in our lives, really, we can just, as Castaneda said, Don Juan told him, look over your left shoulder and consult your death about this. Like, how important is it? Today, I got a FedEx letter. It was supposed to come yesterday at 11.30, and then I could have had things done by this weekend, which I really wanted to do, really important in my life, in one arena. And it didn't come till today. What does my death say about that? If we step back for a minute, I don't know how these algorithms work. Maybe somebody at the Zoom meeting does. (laughs) But we get stories about our interests. I'm sure you do all the time. So I'm interested. I'm fascinated in how the universe works. And so I get the story. There's a little video clip, maybe six or seven minutes long. That's all about the universe. It starts off with the Earth. Here's the Earth. This is where you live down here. And then it expands out to the solar system, and then it expands out to the Milky Way galaxy, and it's a little dot in the Milky Way galaxy. It's 100,000 light years across. And what does that mean? 
that means nothing to me. I mean, I don't understand that. I can't even comprehend that. And it has in it 100 billion stars. I don't think anybody counted them. And 100 billion planets. That's ridiculous. But then you go out a little bit further. And you see the Milky Way in the cluster of galaxies that we live in, called the Lanyakea. And there are 100,000 galaxies like our Milky Way in that. Like, really? The average, maybe, is 100 billion stars in all those galaxies? Really? I mean, do the math. And then you go out further and they describe what we know about the observable universe. We only can see so much. And they say that there are vast parts of the universe, far more than the observable universe that we know of, that we will never know anything about. Because all these parts of space are expanding away from us. So if we lived for eternity, we would never know about what's outside of our observable universe. Like, wow. And people do this. I don't understand it, but people do. They figure out using math equations based on whatever happened at the Big Bang, that the universe, the whole universe, might be 150 sextillion times larger than the observable universe. So I looked this up. Sextillion is like 21 zeros. The point, to me, I just thought I would mention this, not just because it's interesting, but (laughs) just in terms of we're unbelievably small. And everything dies. I mean, it's ridiculous to consider that that's not going to happen for us. Maybe we should take a look at that. It hits closer to home when a loved one dies. And then it's like, oh, yeah, I knew this was going to happen. But somehow you just don't have a reference point for it until that does. So I'm sure that there are some people on the call who have really had an experience of someone close to them dying. And something different happens when that happens. So the idea of trying to hold on to something, that doesn't make any sense. But that's what we do. Think about your own lives and the way that you hold on to things. It's just human nature. I'm nearing retirement age. (laughs) Actually, I've passed that. But I don't consider it retirement age because I'm not retired. But when I do, I will lose a part of my identity, something that I consider very dear to me, a part of me, will end. But trying to hold on in the ways that we do goes against nature in a way. Did you ever hear about this movie, Dick Johnson is Dead? It's a documentary, fairly recent. Probably a lot of people haven't heard of it because it's, you know, an indie film, I think. But also, the topic is challenging. I think we would rather watch superheroes. The documentary filmmaker, Kirsten Johnson, has a father, I think he's still alive, who was showing signs of dementia, and she was having a hard time considering losing him. So she had this idea of making a movie about his death while he was alive. In some way, it's comedic, She wanted to film all these stunts, these different ways that he might die. Falling down the stairs, you see him at the bottom of the stairs, and she's directing him. She's saying, could you lift your arm up here a little bit? And he's walking down the street, and an air conditioner falls down from a high rise and hits him in the head. 
It's a stuntman who falls down. And there are all these different ways that they show that he might die catching on fire. (laughs) She puts him in a casket and she would like him to hear the eulogy that a friend of his will give in church. And he's laying in the casket. He's alive, but they're eulogizing him as if he was dead. There's a lot of heart in it, too. She obviously loves her dad. And it seemed clear that she was preparing for his death, that she was wanting to avoid thinking about, but she felt like she should go there. And she said in this interview that I read, some part of me had completely convinced myself if we did the funeral really in the church with my dad's friends, he would never die. So there's a guy named Stephen Jenkinson. Not sure if you've heard of his name either. The people who are really strong proponents of dying wisely are not all in the mainstream so much. Because in our society, we're cremated or embalmed behind closed doors, making sure that death messes with us as little as possible. You know, we grow up looking at death in those ways, often look at death as morbid. The movies that we see, the horror movies, really exaggerate these fears that we have. And then after we go to a movie and we come out of it, one of these horror movies, we're still alive after seeing these kind of movies. And maybe that's the thrill of it. I'm not sure exactly. But Stephen Jenkinson says that our culture is death phobic. I don't know if any of you have traveled to third world countries where death is much more in your face. In India, they have burning gaps in some locales. And I was walking through there a few years ago with my two adult children. And wow, all of a sudden we walked past a whole pile of bodies that were going to be burned. What happens is they take them out to the burning gas and the families gather around and they pray and they send off their souls. We don't know the time of our death. My brother had a friend and he was just driving home on Christmas Eve a few years ago and someone just swerved into his lane and he died. Fatal car accident. Why use death in advisor? Death is going to come. Why think about it now? When it comes, it's going to come. Maybe we should avoid thinking about it as long as possible. There was a friend of mine who died many years ago, and she was in the dying process. And I was invited to go and see her, and I avoided it. And then by the time it came where I was going to go and visit her, it was too late. She was not conscious in the same way. And I really regretted that. When my own wife died, year and a half ago, I really noticed that some people started treating me differently. At first, I was upset by that. And then I started realizing, oh, gosh, this is how we deal with death. Kind of pushing it away a bit. For me, I don't want to be too heavy about this. It's just reality. I went to my eye doctor, and we had always talked about our families. As soon as I told him that, things just really changed. It was clear. But, you know, another option is for us to look at death, however it shows up in our lives, and to allow it to inform us now, to show up for death. 
So at the outset here in this talk, I'd just like to say that I really don't think that we can go very far on the spiritual path unless we come to terms with it or are working with coming to terms with it. Because if we push this major part of our human experience away, I don't think that we can transform whatever that means, which is something we might talk about. Okay, so that's part one, the intro. Part two out of three. The traditions say that we are one with the universe and that we already are that. We're not aware of it. We're identified with a separate self. And that a kind of spiritual death, not a physical death, a spiritual death is needed to know our oneness with the universe, whatever that means. And that we can't bring that about. Ego can't bring about something that actually is behind what it is. But our need, it said, draws it to us, this possibility of knowing who we are already. Our practice, our need draws help or draws grace, whatever you would call it. So there's reference to this deathless part of ourselves in the spiritual traditions. In the Upanishads, for instance, the idea of the Atman, which transcends the small I that we believe ourselves to be. So we have ideas about that. The thing about dealing with death is that much more, we're actually changed, not just conceptually. Chogim Trungpa Rinpoche, really great Tibetan teacher, came over and took on Western ways and taught here in America, used to say that the person who wants to be enlightened will no longer be there. You can't attend your own funeral. I read about spiritual teaching, and I think that it's really useful to consider these ideas and just be with them. It's not like figuring them out analytically or conceptually is anything like what it is, but it points somewhere for us. Suzuki Roshi, great Zen teacher, came over from Japan, I think in the late 50s. He started the San Francisco Zen Center up there. He was invited to concerts out there, I think with the Grateful Dead, and he would stand up and hold a flower. But he was really an amazing master. He would invite people to come and sit with him at 5.30 in the morning. He said that after some years, we will die. If we just think that it is the end of our life, this will be wrong understanding. But on the other hand, if we think that we do not die, this is also wrong. We die and we do not die. This is right understanding. Some people may say that our mind or soul exists forever, and it is only our physical body that dies. But this is not exactly right, because both the mind and the body have their end. So in these talks, we try to look with ruthless honesty at what traditional spiritual teaching is saying and consider how we might apply that in our lives. So there's a saying, I think it's attributed to the Sufis, die before you die. A lot of spiritual teaching can just be misunderstood, grossly, I think, and we develop discrimination as we go about this. 
Obviously, it's not about the loss of one's life, but about the loss of a separate self. What does that mean? And paradoxically, we inhabit a separate self. People who have lived from this condition of oneness, being one with consciously, have still been individuals. The founders of the great spiritual traditions and many within those traditions. Many, relatively speaking. So my teacher said that the only way to become everything is to become nothing. I don't know. It doesn't make sense, but it makes all the sense to me. And having a sense of where the path leads is so useful. With humor, it gives us a sense of how we can work with ourselves, which is a good thing to know that we have some potential in the midst of our everyday lives. So my teacher, his name is Lee Lozowick. He died 10 years ago. An amazing Western master, which is not so common, used the spiritual traditions, but explained them and worked with people in a very Western way. There's this book that just came out, Pay Attention and Remember. That's a picture of him. It's a book of about 30 or 35 talks that he gave back in the 70s and up until the mid-80s. And this talk, with his inimitable humor and also incisive insight, speaks about how we court death. I'll read. Some of us court death in an obvious fashion. We race cars, play football, and go hunting without wearing our red caps and jackets, which is one of the surest ways to court death, or at least be horribly maimed, crippled, or worse. Others go fishing and simply take the chance of being at the mercy of somebody that doesn't know how to fly cast well. Then there are those who engage in more risky forms of activity, like mountain climbing, ski jumping, tobogganing, or hang gliding all of which are very fine ways of courting death. He had a way of making a point that drove people to really look at themselves, but also in a light way, so that the very threatening nature of what he was saying somehow could be digested. And then afterwards, it was like, um, did he really say that? Or is this really true? Is this really true for me? Can I verify this? On one level, we are terrified of death, and on another level, we encourage it. So consider that. The part of us that knows that survival is not an issue is constantly encouraging us to die. It figures that if you die and you are still alive, then you'll get it. We haven't yet. We have died lots of times and found ourselves still alive. We've been born again and died again over and over, and we still haven't gotten it. Intuitively, we know that if we could just figure out that survival is not an issue, we could be a little easy with ourselves. If we die and realize we haven't died, wherever we are, we could be a little easy. Ego, on the other hand, thinking that death is extinction, does everything in its power to avoid dying. So we have the tendency of ego trying to avoid death and the tendency of the intuitive side of us trying to create death to convince us that it's okay. Interesting to me. At some level, if this is true, which you'd have to verify for yourself, and even if we don't go hang gliding, are there ways that we actually encourage death? He says that for spiritual students, that's a very subtle kind of thing. 
maybe the way that we deal with stress or anger or something. But if this is true, then at some level, we know that we die and we don't die. The thing is, when I'm speaking about practice and about how we can work with these things, we can practice with little deaths every day. I think this is very important. Some of us who attend these talks, we have various spiritual practices, meditation, study, diet, chanting, many things, saying a divine name, inquiry, but relating with our everyday experience right in the here and now. That's practice. And we can practice with little deaths, not like a masochist. Last night, I was at a gathering. And I'm talking to a couple of people that I really like, and I'm waiting to see what might arise. I really don't know what we're going to talk about, but I'm interested. I haven't seen them in a while. And then somebody else comes up and starts talking to them, and their attention goes to this person, and they decide that they would like to talk to him now. And I'm just kind of standing there, and I have some reaction to that. And I realize I can practice a little death here. Very tiny. I have this reaction. It seems like what's needed in the moment is for them to talk to this other person. And I can allow that. I can be no one. And that's the fear, I think, is that underneath, we're going to lose who we are, who we assume ourselves to be so organically. So with things like that, Castaneda would say, maybe, when you need an answer, look over your left shoulder and ask your death. What's your reaction about? Part three. So Zen Hospice, I have no affiliation with them. I just have been reading about them and think that it's really amazing that people have done this. Real spiritual practitioners, it seems to me. It was founded in 1986. And they had the aim of bringing spiritual teaching off the meditation cushion and into the world. Compassion. The aim of reducing suffering, which is central to Buddhism. And they started taking in anyone who wanted to come. Anyone who was dying and they wanted a place to die, rather than maybe on the streets. They took in homeless people or in a hospital. And that's kind of how it started. And the guy's name is Frank Ostaseski, who was one of the co-founders of the Zen Hospice Center. And he wrote this book. A friend gave me the book, and I just thought, oh, we should do a talk about this. What death can teach us about living fully. So the book is just full of teaching and stories about things that happened at Zen Hospice. So the teachings are, or the invitations are, don't wait. Welcome everything. Bring your whole self. Find a place of rest in the middle of things. And cultivate don't know mind. We can practice with these things. You know, if we're not avoiding death. I mean, avoiding the consideration of it. We're all avoiding it. So before I go into the five invitations, is there anyone who would like to say anything? 
I can't help but tie in any consideration, at least for me, of dying and avoiding dying brings up the question about living and avoiding living. I look at this culture and I realize that our attention has been stolen from an early, early, early age. Death is uh, as important a consideration. We observe that in our life as is how we observe the way we're living. Otherwise, you get stuck in this, you know, it's either one thing or another. And to focus on death without focusing on how dead our lives really are, really, to me, this is really important. How do you enliven a life so that you awaken to what the possibilities of death are? This is what's coming up because of what you're saying. I'm not sure that most people would think that they're not really living. Yeah, just like most people aren't realizing that they're dying as they're living. I think this is just a habit. It's not like a philosophical thing. This is the way we're raised. There's an avoidance aspect of living as much as there is an avoidance aspect of, how about living wisely? When you speak that, what occurs to me is that since my wife died, I have realized how I have not lived fully. And what I said about, I'm not sure people realize that they're not fully living. You know, this is life. You don't really have anything to compare that to until you really have the experience of something deeper. And after she died, which was a great shock to me, I really just have gone through a bardo, you know, the in-between world's place that the Tibetans refer to, but that kind of surreal world of thoughts and feelings that have always been kicking around down there, but really going through this underworld and coming out a little bit, just sticking my head up a little bit and saying, well, now what? There's really no reason to hold back. And seeing how I have been holding back. And what you were saying, we're trained that way. We're groomed that way. We grow up that way. I was groomed to hold back, to be safe, to be successful. That's fine to be successful, but that's not living necessarily. That's not giving your whole self. That's actually playing it safe. Maybe for me, giving my whole self would be doing something that's completely unknown to me that I might not be successful at, that I might fall on my face doing. But it would be real and it would be growth if I'm moved to do that rather than holding back, oh, maybe I'll do that someday. So thanks. Anybody else before I go into these five invitations? I'd like to know what do you mean by holding back? As you're talking about death, I grew up in the East. so. We saw life and death all day long. But what we were taught in my household, you have to die to yourself every day in order to be able to live and know who you are. That was what my father used to say all the time. And I didn't understand what it meant till I was older. And If I'm not mistaken, when you are saying hold back, you mean 
letting go of the attachment that we have in a real life. Are you referring to that? I think so. I would say that, yes. Sounds, by the way, like you had a pretty wise father. Yes, I did. (laughs) Holding on to our attachments so that we feel solid, separate, and secure, and unchanging when everything is always changing. And we have to allow for things to change. But we would like to hold on to everything. And hence, I think that the process of unfoldment happens just in tiny ways. It's not like our whole life has to change. We should give up our attachments, move out of our house and whatever. No, no, take, no. Take to the road. But, but it's an internal relationship to those things that we can look at. Yes, exactly. Because after all, we need what we have. Roof over the head, food in the stomach, refrigerator to keep the food, to work in order to survive. All that, yes, it's necessary. But to accumulate more than what we need, like if I have a house to work and let go of the family unit in order to have a bigger house, that is the attachment that I'm talking about. So if we are comfortable with what we have and share what we have, if I have extra, I can share it with someone. And that goes for the knowledge as well. If I have something, if I know something, I can share it with another human. Then that gives me the more opportunity to know myself rather than accumulate and hold on to things, which they are fleeting anyway. And it's going to be gone and done. Well, that's the thing. The house that you're living in now and that I'm living in now, someone else is going to be living in it. Correct. Before too long. There's no shoulds here about it. But to have that kind of context about what we have, we're just kind of minding the store here for, for a period of time, rather than holding on to it so tightly nothing belongs to us even the body we live in even the body we live in all right let me run through some things and then there'll be some opportunity for some more comments if you would like so the first invitation is don't wait you know he says that death sneaks up on us only because we're not paying attention i think that's true it's all around that things are impermanent to use that Buddhist way of describing reality. Everything is impermanent, and we see that, but somehow we are holding on. Everything is changing, but I think a lot of times we make the assumption that we're solid and we're not changing. We are this and always going to be that way. But even if we look at who we were 10 years ago, we're not the same person. After this shock happened in my life of my wife's death, I realized that I am changing. I'm becoming a different person. And that's a little bit scary and sad. There's grief in that. But that's the way of the world. And maybe this is actually a beautiful process. If I could look at it from that context, 
bringing us to love, don't wait to embrace impermanence. So we have some experience of loss of a person, or it can be anything, or job, or position in life, or kids leave home. Don't wait to embrace impermanence, because we will have to do that sooner or later, or it will come to us, even our bodies. Tonight is just an opportunity to step back and take a look at this. Do we want to wait to really embrace impermanence, or should we start now? It's happening anyway. We're not allowing it so much. Like we were just talking about, it's not that means that you should give everything up. It's the way that we hold things. We will have a reaction, but maybe we could relax that. So I'm going to read a little bit, a few sections from this book. He quotes from Carol Hyman, who wrote, Living and Dying, A Buddhist Perspective. If we learn to let go into uncertainty, that's the hard part. Letting go into the unknown, into uncertainty. To trust that our basic nature and that of the world are not different than the fact that things are not solid and fixed becomes rather than a threat, a liberating opportunity. So listen, I don't want to be all rosy about this. We all have very strong reactions based on our attachments, I think. But can I consider a paradigm shift in the way that I live? Rather than the way that I've been trained to hold on, maybe it's possible to look at life and live from a different paradigm. I think I've always known that that was needed. You know, I took a trip with my kids, with my son to Africa. We climbed Mount Kilimanjaro. And I took a trip with my daughter into the Amazon. Not ridiculously risky. But there was enough risk going into the unknown. I just felt like as a parent, that was an important part of giving them something that I could give them. Don't wait is an encouragement to step fully into life now and not wait for the next moment. Sometimes there's an opportunity that comes up now. And maybe we say some other time or maybe later. Don't wait to act on what is most important. Don't get stuck in the hope for a better past or future. Be present. So this idea of being present. There's a story, for those of you who read the Castaneda books, for those of you who didn't, they're just fantastic. Carlos Castaneda is a university student. He's young. And he meets this Yaqui Indian warrior who teaches him. Carlos is compelled to keep going to visit him. And on one of these visits across the border, Don Juan, the teacher, takes him out. And they're walking through a ravine. And a boulder comes crashing down, big one, 20 or 30 yards ahead of them. And Don Juan uses this as an opportunity to teach Carlos. They would just go walking and whatever would come up, he would just use whatever came up to teach Carlos something. So this thing happens. So Carlos Castaneda says that, Don Juan said that the force that rules our destinies is outside of ourselves and has nothing to do with our acts or volition. 
things are going to happen to us. Maybe it's karma. Maybe it's completely haphazard. But there are things that we cannot control. Sometimes that force would make us stop walking on our way and bend over to tie our shoelaces, as I had just done. So Carlos Castaneda is walking with Don Juan, and he stops to tie his shoelaces, and then this boulder comes crashing down right ahead of them. By making us stop, that force makes us gain a precious moment. If we had kept on walking, that enormous boulder would most certainly have crushed us to death. So he's saying that, you know, I just stopped to tie my shoes, and if we had kept walking, maybe that boulder would have crushed us. Don Juan is saying that, well, these forces are outside of ourselves. He said that, Don Juan says that some other day, however, if there was somewhere else in another ravine, the same deciding outside force would make us stop again to bend over and tie our shoelaces while a different boulder would get loose precisely above where they were standing and it might have crushed them. By making us stop, that force would have made us lose a precious moment. Their lives. That time, if we had kept on walking instead of Carlos stopping to tie his shoes, we would have saved ourselves. Here's the point. Don Juan said that in view of my total lack of control over the forces which decide my destiny, my only possible freedom in that ravine consisted in tying my shoelaces impeccably. Like what we can do right now actually does matter. We can bring ourselves to life right now, but we have to pay attention and be with what is right now, not what's going to happen tomorrow and tomorrow. I've got these things going on in my life that I need to take care of, that this FedEx letter that I mentioned at the beginning. But if I just get consumed by all these plans, I'm not here tying my shoelaces. And so my mind is going to do that, but I can remind myself, this is practice to me, to come back. Tonight I have to give a talk. I'm happy to be doing this with you. There are some great points here that really strike me as useful. Castaneda says that Don Juan tells him, your problem is that you think you have time. And we do. We think we have time. And maybe we do, but it goes by pretty quick. And there's no saying that we might not be driving along on Christmas Eve, just like my brother's friend did. And I drive home from work all the time. And I look in the other lane. And sometimes I think, what if that person just swerves right into me? And it never happens. But it could. So how many of us are holding on to something that we need to forgive somebody for? Frank Ostaseski, who wrote this book, The Five Invitations, he tells a story about the first hospice patient. Her name was Blaze. She lived in a motel room and she had no place to go. She got into the hospital and he was asked to go and see her. And he went to see her and she said, okay, I'll come to the Zen Center. They hadn't started the hospice yet. This was the beginning of it. And Blaze was a character. And over time, Frank got to know her. And one day, you know, she doesn't have long to live, a few weeks. She asks Frank if he can find her brother, Travis. And she says that she hasn't spoken to him for over 25 years. And so Frank tries to do that, tries to find him. And it's not easy. These are in the days pre-internet. And she tells him that he's into the rodeo scene. 
somehow he tracks this guy down, Travis, calls him up, tells him that his sister's dying. He should come if he wants to see her. He hasn't seen her in 25 years. He doesn't think he's going to come, but he does. He shows up one day and Travis and Blaze, brother and sister, meet every day. They just talk about chit chat. And then one day, she's starting to turn her health situation. And Frank says to Travis, the brother, if you have anything to say to her, this would probably be a good time. And he mumbles something like, I just don't think I can say it. I just don't think I can tell her. And so he asks Travis to tell him, and he does. Travis and Blaze grew up in foster homes and orphanages, and they had a very hard life. And he had been mean to her and abusive. And so he goes into the room where Blaze is, and he starts to say, you know, sis, there's something that I I, I haven't been able to say. And he's in this cowboy getup. The story is well told. It's a strange scene in the Zen Center where there are these monks in robes, some of them with shaved heads, eating tofu with this guy who is dressed up in cowboy garb. But he goes and he just says a little bit and Blaze just raises her hand and says, there is no blame. There's no blame. That apology, though, had that not been offered, if he had waited and not been able to even just speak those few halting words that allowed her to forgive him. I'm not sure how he would have moved forward. Is there someone you have to forgive? Is there some apology you have to make? He tells a story of two women at a workshop that he gave on forgiveness. One of them stands up and says, I cannot forgive the Nazis who killed all these people. And another woman stands up and says, My father was one of them. I cannot forgive him. These two women are looking at each other in this workshop. And they just spontaneously move toward each other and embrace. Castaneda says, in a world where death is the hunter, my friend, there is no time for regrets or doubts. There's only time for decisions. So what is something that you're waiting to do? What is something that you're not giving yourself to that's calling you? What is most important to you? Are you giving yourself to it? Is there someone you need to forgive? So his first invitation is, don't wait. And I feel that after the death of my life. Number two, welcome everything. Everything? Well, if everything is part of the universe, Everything is divine if you choose to look at it that way. There's the pleasant and the unpleasant, and the unpleasant threatens our separate self. Maybe our spiritual progress depends on our being able to accept the unpleasant in life. Then happiness isn't contingent on things so much. Well-being comes from within and not from externals, the things that are pleasant that make us feel good. Not that we shouldn't like those things. But when the unpleasant comes, it's not like we should feel a certain way about it, but can we open to it? Can I open to the fact that the FedEx guy didn't come till a day afterwards, and this is going to push me back a week? Can I welcome that? Maybe I can. 
just realizing that just like the boulder fell ahead of Carlos and Don Juan, the universe is conspiring to make lessons for me. Carl Rogers said, the great psychotherapist, groundbreaking work. The curious thing is that when I accept everything about myself, then I can change. So accepting the pleasant and unpleasant, even parts of ourselves, rather than pushing them away or judging them. Because when we can make friends with these parts of ourselves that are broken and ruined, we can change. It just happened. You know, there's some nuance to this. So when we give talks, I'm always cognizant of the fact that things that the speaker's saying that I might say could be misunderstood. And we really want to do no harm. Accepting what is as it is doesn't mean don't try. Doesn't mean don't have your feelings, that your feelings are bad. It means welcome and accept what is inside and outside. And act depending on the impulses that you have, if they're real and true. And not just based on wanting to hold on. Because we get creative urges that inform us. Years ago, I met a student of Trungpa Rinpoche's. We were working on a project together. I really wanted this project to happen. I was invested in it. My ego was invested in it. He said to me, what Trungpa Rinpoche used to say is, give it your best shot, then let it go. That's always made a lot of sense to me. Accepting what is as it is doesn't mean don't do anything. So Frank Osasesti tells a story. He wants to see his brother who has just died. His brother's had a lot of ups and downs in his life, and he dies. And so he goes to the funeral home, and he wants to spend some alone time with his brother. And he's waiting and waiting. They bring him out, and he's just sitting with his brother. And in the Buddhist tradition, you are with the dead for some days. He's only going to be able to be there for an hour or so. But as soon as he starts being with his brother, the brother's ex-wife comes in, and she's a drug addict. And she's hysterical. She's all over the place. She's asking questions. He can't just be in the space. And he's having all these reactions, wanting her to leave. And she finally does. And he's just settling into being with his brother like he wants to. And the funeral director walks in and says, hey, we're going to close in five minutes. We're going to have to ask you to leave. And he puts that story in this section of welcome everything. That was the experience with his brother. He says that somehow we find that we can bear what seems unbearable. He tells a story about a 17-year-old kid who dies and the parents call him up. And he thinks that the kid is alive and they want him to come and help the guy to transition, the 17-year-old. But when he gets there, he realizes, oh, they called me and the boy had just died. And they're looking to him for something. And he really doesn't know what to do. And that's true for a lot of us, is that we get into situations and we really don't know what to do. And we just open up and see what feels like the right thing. What will help here? He suggests that they bathe the body. And for the mother, this is very hard at first. And then she does it so tenderly. I was reminded of how when my wife died, Karuna, how my daughter helped dress her with the help of, I don't know what it would be called, 
someone who fulfilled the same kind of function as a midwife for the dying. And they did that together. And it was so useful for my daughter to say goodbye to her mom that way. You know, I, I wouldn't have tried to make that situation happen. It just happened. And it distinguishes love from attachment. And through loss, our feelings of love become of an entirely new order. It tells a story about a girl, a daughter, who could not let go of her father. And then at some point in the dying process, she says to him, it's okay, daddy, you can go. And I'm sure that that experience for that daughter was transformative, full of grief. But to be with that, I think, really brings us further to where the process is taking us, as opposed to pushing it away and just letting the parent die in a hospital and then get whisked off. When my wife died, they said, you really want to get her home right now before she does die, because if she dies here, they're going to take her right away and you won't get to be with her at all. The coroner will come and all of that. And that's a very different experience of death. So what's something that you could welcome or at least not push away? We've been talking about little deaths a little bit. I'll tell you what it is for me. It's scam calls. I got a dozen yesterday, a literal dozen. A baker's dozen is 13, right? Well, I got 12. And when I get scam calls, mostly I don't pick them up. But when I do, these days, I try to be respectful. I try to say, no, thank you. Have a good day. I have been pretty irritable in the past to people in those kind of calls. And then I just realized, why? Can I welcome this? These people are just trying to make a living. So that's another question. What's something you could welcome or at least not push away? Three, bring your whole self. Ram Das, some of you have heard of him. He wrote the book, Be Here Now. He had an Indian master, Neem Karoli Baba. He said, be a soul, not a role. We're not our roles. We become identified with the separate role that we have. It could be a mom. It could be a dad. It could be a policeman. It could be a rich person, a poor person. In my case, I am a therapist. I work with traumatized teenage kids. And there's this thing, he refers to this in this book, of helper's disease. Therapists or psychiatrists sometimes tend to see people as patients and not really connect with their humanity and our sameness. So where I work, there's one kid, I think somebody in their family died. They, they get up on the top of a roof and they're threatening to jump. Oh my gosh, they're putting mattresses down at the bottom of the building. Police cars, six of them are there. And another kid just gets triggered by this whole thing. And she's out of it. She's in another universe. This is triggering losses for her. And they asked me to come and talk to her. Of course, I go over. And I'm realizing I've got all these other things to do. Really, the, the job is ridiculous. How much there is that we're expected to do. Yet I have to be with this kid in this situation. And then I realize I need to bring my whole self here. I need to be with this kid. He says that 
when someone we love dies, we keep losing them over and over. Oh my God, is it true? I go to Sprouts. I'm going to go to Sprouts after this talk is over. <laughs> when I walk down the aisles, I just think about being there with my wife a lot. You know, she's getting the asparagus. I'm getting some avocados. It's almost like I could look over my shoulder and see her there. But you realize, he says that there is a loosening. That's how he, what he calls it, a loosening over time. When the knot of grief begins to untie. I used to take walks in nature every day. Really, every day. Every single day, I would just take a walk through the boulders, the nature, or in the national forest. I don't do that anymore. Things change. We're a different person. I'm a different person now. Life is very fragile and precious. Relationship continues, and the person is internalized. Wow. Wow. So I'm talking about the transformational possibilities of death or the transformational process that loss triggers and just talking about some of my experience it's just the way things are for human beings in surrendering to grief we have learned to give ourselves to life in the end we may still fear death but we don't fear living nearly as much in surrendering to our grief we have learned to give ourselves to life so how do you hold yourself back from giving your whole self? Invitation number four, find a rest in the middle of things. Here and now is the only place of rest. Take just a couple seconds right now. Right here and now. This is the only place of rest. How often are we just cogitating about all kinds of things? Find the place of rest. He tells a story about Suzuki Roshi, this great Zen master. The day before he died, he's being lowered into a bathtub by his son. And he's really, it seems like he's scared. And his son says to his dad, the great Zen master, hey, calm down. And they breathe together. And Suzuki Roshi gets into the tub. Frank Osaseski really makes the point that it's not helpful for people who are dying, or for any of us at any time, to feel that we've got to do it a certain way. There's not a right way to die. We come back to our practice, find a place of rest in the middle of things. Oh, God, there's a mom of a three-and-a-half-year-old boy who got hit by a car. She became a hospice volunteer for parents who have lost their kids and is able to help them find a place of rest. There's this story of a mother of an eight-year-old kid who had died who brings the kid to the Buddha and says, can you bring him back? Help me with this. And the Buddha says, I can help. Go to all the houses in this village and get a mustard seed from every family who has not had death touch them. And the woman goes. She goes from house to house to house, and she hears story after story of how death has touched each family. 
And when she comes back to the Buddha, she has some peace. Her view has changed somewhat. There's been some shift in the way that she looked at this. I'm sure extremely sorrowful, but also understanding the connection with humanity that we all have. We all share this. So a question is, are there situations where you need to find a place of rest? Where you're so preoccupied that you don't step back and take a few seconds of awareness. Lastly, cultivate don't know mind. We know so much. That's a tremendous source of security for a lot of people. All the things that we know. But really, in the end, it's a big mystery. And we have to let go into the unknown. We'll lose everything, all of our knowledge. He tells the story of an elderly woman hospice patient. She's the kind of person, maybe some of you are like this, who's on top of everything. I'm just blown away by people like this. I work with one. They're just on top of everything. And she is convinced that she needs to take care of her husband. And he can't do anything. He can't take care of her. Couldn't stay with him. She knows that. But over the time that she's in the hospice, he comes to visit her. And she relaxes everything that she knows about this. And she goes home and he cares for her. And that's a great gift. People who are dying offer us a lot. They offer us a great gift. At some point, meaning loses importance. And people withdraw into an inner journey. And they have to let go of everything that they know. And it's important for us to let them go and not try to pull them back. When the body closes down, consciousness opens up. I think I'll just end with this. It's possible to contemplate the mystery of life and death at any moment. It's too important to leave until our final hour. So, in what ways could you let go now? I've asked a lot of questions, and I've talked a lot, but it's a very vital subject for me at this point. Please, I'd welcome any comments and questions. Usually, we would end at about this point, but I'd really like to hear from you if you have anything to say. Anyone? What you got? <laughs> um, you touched on something at the very end uh, about the meaning of things. To my understanding, things mean something if I attach meaning to it. Otherwise, they have no meaning. In other words, if I'm looking at an object and if I feel that is important, then I'm giving a meaning to that object and I hold on to it take care of it, love it, enjoy it, whatever it is. But I'm the one who gives meaning to that, even the thought that I thought about. But if I don't give meaning to it, it's like a cloud. It comes and goes. We do give meaning to things, though. Yeah, we do. The point that he was making in this book was that at some point, those meanings, we give them up. Meaning loses its importance. That's how I said it. Correct. All the things that we had thought were so important, my FedEx envelope and all the things that goes along with that, 
completely forgotten. Yeah. A step further, it's attachment to the things that we like to accumulate. So mm-hmm. we give meaning to it in order to become important. Yes. You know, it's also important to be able to fully live in the situation that we're in. So no need to feel guilty about the things that we have, I don't think, to fully live with what we have. It's just, do we need more? Or if things get taken from us, can we roll with it? We are not in a habit of rolling with it because we, especially in the West, we obsess over things and we collect and we hang on to things including life itself. Until the last, we'll put people on machines and they'll stay on for a year. Just something to look at, how we do that. Right. Anyone else would like to say something about this topic? I would like to. Just a a couple of comments, Suzuki, Roshi, and you also mentioned Trumpa, two great Buddhist teachers, both coming from cultures one that had been hit by atomic bombs and the other culture just decimated. So the aliveness of their teaching came from a pretty heavy-duty context of death. And I'm just left wondering how it is to keep this awareness of death as a contributing factor to my life. It is just so easy to fall asleep. Yes. How can I cultivate this intimacy with my life and death without artificially creating extreme circumstances is a question I have for myself. I won't try to answer it. Yeah, I'm not asking for yeah, an answer. Just, I know. just to share just how easy it is to fall asleep. I appreciate your comments. I would never be able to speak about these things had I not had the loss that I had. And I don't know that it's necessary so much, but it seems like it's part of the process for a lot of people. Two things to offer. One is that there's a phrase that is used in some spiritual paths. It's Latin, memento mori. Please remember your death. It's a handy phrase, memento mori. It's one that I find useful as a touchstone. And the other thing is that even though everything about us changes, I think as a common human experience that as you grow older, you still feel like you're the same. And the reason for that is that there is something that has not changed. Consciousness, our awareness, has not changed at all. And that is what won't die either. It is what is alive in us now, and it is what so-called survives. It doesn't change. It neither lives nor dies. It wasn't ever born. And that's the key for me, and in some practices. What is it that doesn't change in us? Well, it seems like the spiritual path only goes in that direction. Not just understanding that in our heads, but in our bodies. And along the way, we are really challenged, I think, if we're not in denial of seeing how we're holding on to this separate idea of ourselves. 
because that does have to die. But everything relative will die. And that's a hard pill to swallow. And I really want to acknowledge all of you guys for hanging in there for this talk, because this is not for the lighthearted, really, to consider these ideas. But they seem true. I've never been able to walk away from the path. I've really wanted to on a few different occasions, really strongly. But it just has seemed to me like the path is true. And to really understand the path, we have to come to terms with death. And we're in process with that. 